Good morning. Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And as we gather today, we remember our baptismal covenant having been sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. Amen. Our gospel reading today is from the 14th chapter of Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus heard what had happened to John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, It is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. But Jesus said, We do not need to have them go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls and broke pieces, the broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. The Gospel of our Lord. Invite you to pray with me the Holy Spirit prayer in our time of meditation today. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit instructs the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Did you know that this miracle story that's recorded, of all the miracle stories that are recorded in all four of the Gospels, this feeding of the 5,000 miracle story is the only miracle story that is recorded in all four of our Gospels. The only miracle story in all four of our Gospels. Now you have to understand, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John they didn't necessarily know each other, and it's not like they all got together and said, you know, let's all figure out which one of these miracle stories is the most important one that we should include in, in the gospel narrative. It just, it just happened. It was one of those divine things. I think that it's worth taking a moment to just pause and think about that. That this particular story is the only story that, miracle story that's in all four of our gospels. I did a little reading this week, and one of the persons that I read, she's a professor at preaching at Luther Seminary. Her name is Carolyn Lewis. She's been on the staff and on the faculty at Luther Seminary now for a number of years. One of the things that she ponders about this is that she asks the question, she says, why this story? Why this story? What is so important about this story, she asks. What does this story, this miracle story, what does this story reveal to us about God, about Jesus, and about who we are called to be in a world where each and every single one of the evangelists who wrote these Gospels, they all felt that this was an important story worth remembering. And I hope that you take a little bit of time this week and perhaps just ask yourself that question and, and do a little pondering yourself about this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 plus. One of the images that this story conjured up in my mind 
was the experience that we had about five years ago when myself and two other adults and several of our youth went to the National Youth Gathering in Houston, Texas. And we were gathered, I believe it was the stadium where the Houston Rockets, you know, the professional basketball team, Houston Rockets. In this stadium, there were 35,000 people from all over the United States, from Lutheran congregations, most of them youth, but a lot of pastors and youth directors and chaperones. So we had a diverse mix of people. And we gathered there every single day for our large group plenary sessions. And one of the things that we did while we were in this big, huge basketball stadium is that we worshipped. And one of the components of some of our worship services was the celebration of Holy Communion. And on that very first service where we were sitting there and they said, we are going to be celebrating Holy Communion, I looked around at the stadium and I said, how are they going to do that? We've got 35,000 people here. How are we going to commune 35,000 people? Kind of a mind-boggling thought, isn't it? Well, when they revealed how they were going to do it, it all made complete sense. Because, you see, one of the things that they did was they asked some of the youth and the youth directors and pastors, they asked them whether or not they would be willing to volunteer, and so people had signed up in advance to volunteer to be communion distributors. And it really was quite the system, and I want to just explain to you how they did it. So you understand, we're in a stadium, you know, and you're talking about stadium seats, you know, that are inclined. And so we're, you know, and we're, some people were up sitting up there in the nosebleed seats, you know, even, even in those basketball stadiums, there's nosebleed seats. But what they did was all of these hundreds of volunteers, they came down into these staircases and they strategically located themselves about every fourth or fifth row. And they had the bread and they had the communion common cup. And what they did was is they had the front row come and they would commune and then the row behind would just simply make a circle. It was an oblong circle. And that as they communed, this person would go down the pew, and this pew would exit and come around this way. And so that's how we were able to have communion. We did two rows at a time, and then when they were done communing that row, they would move down and commune the next row of people. And it just went off like clockwork. It was just this beautiful experience of having you know, thousands of people communing all at the same time in this big, huge basketball stadium even in the midst of this stadium there was there was this opportunity to have this personal intimate experience of receiving receiving the tangible means of grace through the sacrament of holy communion and at the same time you felt and you sensed this overwhelming sense of gigantic community and I can, as I looked around the stadium, you could see people of all walks of life, all ages of life, all races of life. There was no distinction. We were all as one, each individually a child of God, and yet corporately we were the body of Christ with our own unique life stories, our own unique faith journeys, our own gifts and talents and strengths and needs and struggles and challenges. Every one of us, was there as, as one. And there was diversity. Diversity was present all throughout. There were people of Asian and 
blacks and, and whites, and there was Native Americans. I mean, there were people of all walks of life there. Diversity was present, and yet we shared one common cup, one common faith, one common humanity, and we came to have this experience of experiencing Holy Communion together in this large arena. I'm also reminded of the Exodus story. I want you to go back this week and read the 16th chapter of Exodus. That's just a small portion of the Exodus story, but it's probably the piece that is, kind of gives us the best, best description of what, was, what it was like for them. And it's a story about God who provided for the grumbling is- Israelites who found themselves, for lack of a better term, found themselves away from brick and mortar, and they faced the uncertainty of wondering where their next meal would come from. Once again, if you, you read this story in its entirety, it's a story of God's engagement. It's a story of God's in- intervention, God's patience and generosity with these people, the Israelites. And for me, as I read that 16th chapter of Exodus again this week, one of the most revealing verses for me was verse 35, where it says, listen to this, folks. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna for 40 years until they reached the border of Canaan. Now, can you imagine that, folks? Think about that. Yeah, I know. Some of you are sitting there going, Ah, I've been eating oatmeal every day for the last 55 years of my life. Well, yeah. But you've also had the opportunity to have maybe some chicken and some beef and some, you know, some Chinese food and maybe some Thai food and maybe some Swedish meatballs. And, you know, you've had the opportunity to have a variety of different foods. These people ate manna for 40 years. Imagine that. Now, granted, there was a little bit of variety because in the evening, they always had quail that somehow God provided for them, divinely provided them with quail. So, okay, granted, we had some quail and we had some manna, but that was it, you know? Kind of a boring diet, wouldn't you say? For 40 years. Now think about it. People back in that time, that was a lifetime. They spent their entire life in the desert, and all they ate was manna and quail. As privileged, abundantly blessed people who have every kind of food literally at our fingertips. I mean, I went to the grocery store today, and I bought that candy so that you all could have a little sweet tooth event today. And there was so much candy variety there, I didn't know what to pick. You know, I kind of picked what I thought was my favorite candies. But I had, I, I had the world at my fingertips right there, folks. The world was my oyster. I had any kind of candy I could imagine in right there in front of me. And that was just one row of a grocery store that's got, what, 30 rows of food stocked? So I, question, so I ask you, when you hear this Exodus story about these people in the desert for 40 years, all, all they're eating is manna and quail, how do you hear that? How do we, how do we envision that? How, how, how does that sink into us? What does that make us think about? And yet we also know We also know that this is a reality for millions of people around the globe to this day, to this very day. There are people 
who literally probably have nothing else to eat except a little bit of rice every single day. And that's still a reality for millions upon millions upon millions of people on planet Earth today. And in many respects, you and I, we simply choose to ignore it. We see little posts on our Facebook page about starvation in Africa, and we just scroll by it like a finger, with a flip of our fingertips. We see a television commercial on TV about children suffering from malnutrition and starvation, and we just filter it out. I want to ask you today, what does it mean for us when we pray, give us this day our daily bread? What does it mean for us when we pray, give us this day our daily bread? Did you, did you listen to the words again? Give us this day our our, that's the plural, not, not my daily bread, but our daily bread. What was, Jesus, what was Jesus talking about there? I think when we pray that prayer, it's a call to action. It's a call to discipleship. That it's not just a personal prayer for daily sustenance, but it is a prayer for us to see ourselves as connected it's not just something that we just pray randomly every day of our lives or whenever we get together conveniently for a church council meeting or a, or a you know, committee meeting. You know, one of the things that's a tradition at this congregation is that, well, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Okay, well, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, we just say it. But are we really praying it? And especially when we get to this part where we say, give us this day our daily bread. And for me, as I hear that, it's more than just a prayer for daily sustenance for my own personal, but it is a prayer to see ourselves and to remind ourselves that we are connected to a common humanity in which there is inequity and there's inequality. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a prayer about taking action to intentionally be more informed and to be engaged in kingdom work, to be more proactive in our efforts to educate ourselves and one another, and to labor for more than just to labor for more, for a more just and equitable society and world order. Give us this day our daily bread. A lot of you here are old enough to know the person by the name of John Lennon. I know one of them Beatle guys, one of them radicals. Well, he was pretty radical for his time, that's for sure. But you know, I, I wonder, I wonder if John Lennon was speaking a prophetic voice of what it means to pray for daily bread in his song, Imagine. We all know the John Lennon song, Imagine. And I want to remind you of a few of the words, some of the lyrics to that song. He says, imagine no possession. I wonder if we can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. I wonder, perhaps, if John Lennon was speaking a prophetic voice in that song, in those lyrics, and giving us another meaning to what it means to pray, give us this day our daily bread. The words of Jesus that we heard him speak just a few months ago have also been clamoring in my brain this week. And those words are from John 14, verse 12. 
All week long, these words have just been coming back to me. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. You all remember when that took place. That was Jesus, that was kind of his farewell discourse to his disciples before he was crucified. And yet he was telling them something about what's going to be happening into the future. He said that I've done some pretty miraculous things while I've been here on earth, but you know what? You and the collective, you and the collective out there, you're going to do even greater things than I have done. Because collectively, as the body of Christ over these last 2,000 plus years, greater things have been done and they are still being done today. Over the last decades and centuries, and even up to this very day, millions upon millions of people have been given and provided daily sustenance because of the kingdom work that is being done in the name of Jesus. Through the efforts of the collective church in the world, aid is being given to war-torn Ukraine, displaced families are being housed in safety, medical supplies are being shipped and distributed to places all over the world where they're experiencing natural disasters right now, Housing assistance and blankets and clothing and food are being provided to millions upon millions of people, even as we speak right now. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not just about bread. It's about all of that. Whenever, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. You and I are gathered here today to hear a living word. That's one of the things that we believe. That's one of the reasons why we're actually in this sanctuary today is because we are hearing a living, active word that is alive. And it's alive through the spoken word, but it's also alive because of, of what we collectively, not just Mount Olive Lutheran Church, but what happens within our synod, what happens within our nation, which happens within our world, within the context of this Christian community. We are the living word in the world. And that word... God has told us, and God continually keeps reminding us, that it will not return to God empty. Once again today we heard words from Isaiah, the 55th chapter, words that speak of abundance and covenant promises. We heard a beautiful psalm today about abundance and promise. And those words from Isaiah 55, they even continued on just a further. We heard these words just a few weeks ago. From Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth sprouts and seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and succeed in the things for which I have sent it. I believe that one of the most important phrases in this miracle story today is when Jesus says to the disciples, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I believe what that phrase is, is it is the living, active word that's reminding us again today that when we see a need, we just don't send them away. We give them something to eat. We help them. I believe that these are a living, active word again to remind us today that we are called as disciples of Christ 
to take action. It's a call for us to discipleship. It is a living, active word spoken to us on this day. In other words, when we see it, we're called to respond. We are called to live the gospel that has touched and transformed our life with Christ's abundant generosity. The gospel message, this gospel life, this gospel compassion that Jesus had for others and for us is still at work in us and in our lives, both individually and corporately, even today. Christ's body in the world, in and through us, is about doing greater things than these. So I return to the questions that were posed to us earlier today from Professor Carolyn Lewis. Why this story? What is so important about it? What does it reveal about God, about Jesus, and about who we are called to be in the world? Because you see, Jesus is giving the people more than just a morsel of bread and fish. He is also teaching his disciples and he's teaching you and me again the way of discipleship. You give them something to eat. Give them something to eat. Jesus is teaching them and us a discipleship way. And those disciples, they continued that. Even after Jesus, it took them a while to figure it out, but they continued to live out that for the rest of their lives. And every one of them were martyred because of that. And that is the discipleship way that you and I are continually being called to live out also for the rest of our lives. So I want to leave you today with a few additional words from Carolyn Lewis. And I think that they are worthy for your consideration as you take up this call to discipleship, this call to action. I think these are words that just kind of hit me upside the head this week when I read them. And it was kind of another one of those, okay, Craig, in those times when you're feeling tired and you're feeling weary and you just don't want to take another step or you don't want to do another kind uh, act of compassion and you're just totally wiped out and worn out, uh, here's a little something to slap you upside the head. She says, discipleship is rarely tidy or convenient. That one just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Discipleship is rarely tidy or convenient. This past Thursday, it was late afternoon, it was about 4.30 in the afternoon, everybody else in the office had gone home, and the office door was locked, and I was still in my office, you know, doing some things. And I saw a van drive up to the parking lot. And I thought to myself, okay, I can just sit here and I can just kind of ignore the fact that they're out there and I don't have to answer the door because there's no indication that there's anybody here. And they're just going to go up and knock on the door and they're going to, they're you know, go away. That was, a, that was a split second thought that I thought. See, I'm human. See, I'm human. I'm selfish. You know, it was one of those moments where I'm saying, I don't, I don't want to sit and listen to somebody else. I don't want to have to help somebody else again today. But that was a moment. And then I got up and I went and I opened up the door and I welcomed them in. We came into my office and I sat. And it was a, it was a, it was a messy story. It was a messy, dirty story about some people who are having a very difficult time in their life right now. And I could have very easily just said, I'm not even going to answer the door. But I did. Because it was a reminder to me that this discipleship stuff 
It's not always convenient and it's not always tidy. And for me, this was another one of those examples of how discipleship isn't always tidy or convenient. And yet we're called to take up and extend that same compassion that Jesus has had for us. And then she finally concludes and she says, she says, discipleship is rarely tidy or convenient. In what you will be asked to live and when, even on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30 in the afternoon when everything's locked up and everything looks like we've all gone home for the day to go back into the comfort of our own homes, what you will be asked to live and when may just be a miracle itself. Amen. I invite you to join me now as we pray the prayer the Lord has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now go forth from this place refreshed and empowered to do the ministry to which God calls you. And travel lightly for you carry within you all you need and notice God's presence in simple everyday experiences. And whenever opportunity arise, give us this day our daily bread. Go out there and provide for what needs to be provided. And labor for the good of all. And may the blessing and the joy of God, our creator, healer, and life giver, go with you today and always. Amen. Go in peace and tell what God has done. And thanks be to God.